Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Today we're doing episode 10, the beginning of the end, part 2. Um, last time we were here, we listened to episode 9, the beginning of the end, part 1. You can go check that out on, um, on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Um, now, um, I didn't read the description of episode 9, but here I'm going to read the description of episode 9. And this was posted on July 6, 2021, and it says, After the April 2020 arrest of Paul Flores and his father, Ruben Flores, Chris, the podcast, the podcaster of Your Own Backyard, recounts the search that led to them. The timeline that's of the spot where the investigators believe Kirsten Denise Smart's body was buried. Now that I read the description of episode 9, I'm going to read the description of episode 10. <clears throat> episode 10, the beginning of the end, part 2. Um, this was also posted on the same date, July 6, 2021. So it's basically been two years since this was, almost two years since this was posted. It says, Chris travels down to South Bay, which again as you heard, South Bay, California, and attempts to trace Paul Flores' predatory behavior from its origins to the present day. So without further ado, I'm going to set it up right now. So give me one minute. This episode contains graphic descriptions of violence and sexual assault that will likely be disturbing for some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Ruben Flores was born in Compton, California on April 9th, 1941. Susan Charles was born 10 years later in New York City and raised by a young mother who would go on to marry a man she later had six more children with. Ruben served for four years in the U.S. Navy, reaching a level of third-class petty officer before being honorably discharged in 1963. He then got a job with General Telephone, later GTE, where he worked for the next several decades, even staying on board when they became Verizon in 2000, up until his retirement. Sometime in the mid-60s, he worked for a few years as a reserve police officer, for the Redondo Beach Police Department. As a reserve officer, what duties did you have? Just back up an officer on patrol. Okay. And did you have occasion to do that? Yes. Why did you cease employment in that line of work? I wasn't employed, I was just a volunteer. For years, he and Susan would keep an antique police baton hanging in the entryway of their home until it was seized by San Luis Obispo Sheriff's Detective Henry Stewart on July 18th 1996 during the first search of their white court home it's unclear when reuben stopped working for the redondo beach pd as reuben himself can't even seem to remember the years he was there when asked about it during his 1997 deposition in the late 60s he was also married to a woman named gail though he also claims not to remember when that happened or when it ended 
But during this time, Susan is attending a Catholic high school in Upper Manhattan, where she graduates in 1969. She gets a job at a bank on 38th and Broadway before relocating the following year to be with her family in Redondo Beach, California, taking a job at another bank there. She transfers to a Torrance branch, and that seems to be where, in 1971, she meets Ruben Flores, who she marries on August 7, 1971, only a year after moving to California. Ruben is 30 years old. Susan is 20. In December of 1971, they purchase a three-bedroom home on Hallison Street in Torrance for $28,500. Susan continues to work at the bank in Torrance and Reuben at General Telephone. In March of 1974, their daughter, Irma Linda, is born. And two years later, on October 22, 1976, Paul Ruben Flores completes the family picture. While Irma Linda shares Ruben's complexion, Paul is pale, with green eyes, and platinum blonde hair. Susan leaves the bank when Paul is born, and spends a few years working at home until Paul starts preschool at the Good Shepherd in Torrance. In 1981, she gets a part-time job as a teacher's aide at St. James Catholic School, which Irma Linda attends, and Paul enters kindergarten there in 1982. Susan has regular yard sales at the Hallison Street House in Torrance, where she sells furniture, toys, books, jewelry, and vintage dolls. In 1985, she becomes the registrar for West Torrance's American Youth Soccer Organization, a team that Paul plays on. In late 1996, after Paul's name is released in connection to the disappearance of Kristen Smart, teammates and a former coach reach out to Keith Sharon, a writer for the Daily Breeze in Torrance, to recount a time that Paul lashed out at teammates, deflating several soccer balls with a sharp object and threatening to stab one of the other players. I've been unable to verify whether Paul was removed from the team for this. If you have information about this or any other incidents, you can reach out to me on my website. Around this same time, Susan Flores runs a daycare out of the Hallison Street house, which about a dozen children from St. James Catholic School attend each day. Uh, my daughter went to St. James School. That's how we met the Floreses. And if I recall, it was through, somehow we got referred for after school care. I, and so I was working and going to school and and I'm not sure if you talked to anyone else that did the after-school care. Many of these former students and parents have reached out to me to share their stories from this daycare, though most of them were nervous about being recorded for the podcast. But a lot of them recall one standout incident from their time there and ask me if I've spoken to a girl whose name I won't use. Luckily, this girl's mother did agree to share her recollection of this incident. Okay, so what it was, was the kids went to school to like 2.30, and then a group of children, I'm going to say it was probably about 10, I don't quite recall, because, you know, I don't know if some of them got picked up by the time I got there, and she, uh, Susan lived very close to us, so then after school, what they would do is Susan would have snacks for them, she had a room that the kids all like did their homework they had a snack break and then they did their homework in the in the room and got you know got caught up on everything 
my daughter, she didn't really interact a lot with Susan's two kids just because they were odd. So Irma Linda, I believe, was a year older than and I believe Paul was a year younger. So, you know, it was kind of like she had many of her friends there anyway. So she just, you know, when I asked her today, she just said all she remembered is that she just avoided the kids because they just were like very, you know, it's just a very odd family. It was just all, you always felt like you were walking in on something you weren't supposed to be walking in on. So she went there from first grade to, I believe, fourth or fifth or part of fifth grade. So, you know, we socialized them. I remember there was like Halloween parties, Christmas parties. Um, They went to my daughter's birthday parties. But it was sort of like that where they were there, but just really kept her distance, especially from Paul. He really was fixated on And it's so funny because somebody just sent me some pictures of some of the birthday parties. And it's like, he's always like right there on like, almost like hovering over her. And it's like, I don't think she even noticed it because she just, you know, she didn't pay attention to him. She was just always avoided him. So then in the summertime, it was, they, she, Susan also did summer care. So that was even more of the kids. And that was where they got to play in the pool and they made, you know, she made lunch and stuff and she did little outings with them and stuff. All the kids were in the pool, and Paul was in the pool, and he was trying to get attention, and she just kind of kept going toward the other end of the pool to stay away from him, and so apparently that upset him, and so he pushed her in under the water and then was on top of her and wouldn't let her up, and, you know, then all the kids started yelling at him to let her up, let her up, and he wouldn't, he was very angry. And they, you know, they started screaming and she said she remembered somebody came out and like dragged him out of the pool. And she goes, I don't remember if it was Susan. I don't remember if it was another adult that was there. But um, so then the parents were calling me. Susan never told me about the incident. Um, So the parents were calling me and they told me what happened. And so, you know, of course, I left work immediately. I went to go pick her up and I confronted Susan you know, she just goes, you stupid child. She goes, you're making such a big deal out of this. You really, you know, this is just how kids play. And he didn't do anything wrong. And I'm like, that's not what I was told, you know. I said, I was told by the parents that he held her there and somebody had to pull him off of her. She's like, oh, it was no big deal. You know, this is, you're just making too much of this. You know, and, you know, and again, she's like playing the victim. You're just, you're causing us trouble. You're, you're, you're just being a stupid child. And so I, you know, it's like, I said, okay, well, I'm not bringing her back anymore. So I, that was it. We never went back. I never spoke to her again after that. The incident, which Susan claims was typical childhood behavior, seemed to at least be unusual enough to stick out in so many memories over the years, with parents still emailing me to ask, has anyone told you about Paul and the girl in their pool? It seems like this is when Paul's behavior began to escalate. One person I spoke to recalled that Paul was always eager to fight him on the playground for no reason, a lot of energy, and seemingly no control of his temper. Around the time he begins middle school, Classmates begin to describe Paul as weird and creepy, descriptors that will stick with him for the rest of his life. I was really good friends with his cousin, and Paul came to our our school, and he just kind of showed up at places when we were in junior high um, with, with his cousin because his cousin was invited. So my feeling is that it kind of felt like I was forced to kind of have him tag along um, I know everybody just always was 
uncomfortable when he would show up because he just was odd and he just it was just a eerie feeling he kind of always gave everybody he did play baseball uh at Tredondo Little League which a lot of us did and um there was a book that went around that had everybody's phone numbers and everything in it she sends me a picture of one of these books a team directory that lists each member's name followed by their home address and telephone number paul's name is fourth from the top and for a long period of time i was getting prank calls on a nightly basis and whoever it was was asking for me and then breathing and it was scary and little by little the word got out that it was Paul who was calling and it was not just me who was calling there was a lot of us girls my brother had to have a conversation with him because he was one of the coaches down at little league and let him know that he didn't appreciate him calling and to knock it off so i remember a halloween party once that um we were at i would say in 6th or 7th grade and he kind of hit up in the tree while we were all you know dancing and having this party and none of us really even knew he was there and then all of a sudden he came out of the tree and we were all kind of creeped out like how long has he been here and been just hiding up in the tree and those little kind of memories that you kind of go back and say yeah when when i started watching all this i i had no doubt in my mind that he was absolutely capable of something like this it's, it's terrible to think of but um you know we we all have gotten together and kind of chatted a little bit throughout this whole last year and a half or so and you know none of us are none of us are shocked none of us are surprised i was talking to my son the other day saying you know you know when if you were to see somebody you went to school with and this was happening and you felt like no they could never do something like that you know like i know that I said the second I saw that the first time I saw it on Unsolved Mysteries I just went oh my god he did it I had no doubt I knew he was capable of that it was the weirdest thing and I I I would never say that about anybody that says to me a bunch While Paul was in middle school Ruben and Susan Flores purchased a house on East Branch Street in Arroyo Grande and another house on Short Street It's unclear if they're planning to move up to the Central Coast or if they're just investing in real estate, but they don't leave the area for another 4 years. Ruben and Susan purchase a 1-acre plot of land on White Court in Arroyo Grande in 1990 and begin to have a house built on it. Shortly after Paul assaults Nick Spritzer at Burtland Middle School, putting him in the hospital, an incident which the Flores family's insurance company settles for $5,000. Ruben and Susan sell their house on Hallison Street. And after their daughter Ermelinda graduates from West High School in Torrance, they move to Arroyo Grande into the newly built home on White Court. Paul starts his sophomore year that fall at Arroyo Grande High School while Ermelinda enrolls at Cal Poly. Throughout that summer and fall, After listing their house on Short Street for rent several times, they finally sell that property and begin to fix up the Branch Street house. Ruben is unable to get a work transfer up to the Central Coast, so for the next several years, he commutes between Arroyo Grande and Redondo Beach every week. During this time, Susan starts taking night classes to get her real estate license. In 1993, 
When Paul gets a job at Garland's Hamburgers in Grover Beach, she buys him a brand new iridescent green Ford Ranger. Over the next year, Paul will collect six traffic tickets for speeding, failure to stop, tailgating, and disturbing the peace. Susan Flores is hired by Prudential Hunter Realty, and less than a month later, Mike McConville is also hired. Perhaps because Reuben is rarely home, it's around this time that co-workers tell me Susan and Mike start to have an affair. Although both Susan and Mike claim in later depositions that their relationship didn't begin until 1998 or 99, it's absolutely not true, according to people who know them. When Mike's wife discovers the affair in 1995, she sells the house they bought together and leaves Arroyo Grande. Ruben is finally transferred to GTE in Goleta in 1995 as a payphone technician, which comes with an $800 a month pay cut. Susan is working at Prudential, picking up night shifts at JJ's Market in the village, and renting out the Branch Street house to make ends meet. Meanwhile, Paul finishes his senior year at Arroyo Grande High School, while his behavior continues to escalate. Women I've spoken to told me that he asked them to urinate in front of him at parties in exchange for money, or to sit bottomless on a glass coffee table while he laid underneath. After his prom on May 20th, 1995, Paul attends a party and again demonstrates a propensity for responding violently to situations that don't call for it. So in 1995, um, I was a junior in high school and Paul Flores was a senior. It was just known that he was not someone who was safe to be around. He was Scary Paul. I remember referring to him as Scary Paul. I went to prom after prom, went to a prom party, and Paul was there. My date went off, you know, to the left to get us a drink, and I went, you know, off to the right and found some friends that were other girls sitting on the ground, and they invited me to sit down with them. And we just started a conversation and suddenly Paul comes up and says to me, so I was sitting there. I just kind of looked up to him. I'm like, okay, well, I'm sitting here now. And he's all that I, you know, you can move or I'm going to body slam you. And I just kind of looked at him and I said, no, you're not. And he's all, and then the next thing he said to me is, why are you cock blocking me? And I was just so dumbfounded. I said, I just looked at him and I just said, shut up, Paul. The next thing I remember, everything went black. Like my hearing came back before my vision did. I heard everyone like this collective gasp. I heard someone say, holy shit. And then the next thing I remember, it was like my vision was coming back and I was on my back on the other side of Paul on the floor and he was standing over me laughing at me it was like a rush of people very quick over me. Like I, I remember seeing like the bottoms of people's shoes. One of the girls that I was sitting with kind of like crawled over to me and said to me, she's like, let me help you up. And then very quickly she said, you need to get up. And she kind of grabbed me by the hands and helped me up to my feet. And I turned around and four of the other guys at the party had rushed Paul literally over my body and slammed him into a corner. And they were yelling at him. You can't effing do that. You shouldn't have fucking done that. And I heard Paul yell back at them. Well, she was cock blocking me. And they said, it doesn't effing matter. It doesn't matter. 
shouldn't do that. And there was a lot of yelling. My friend helped me stand up. She handed me my glasses. My glasses had gotten knocked off my face. And I just remember being so shocked, just stunned that that had happened. And guys by that point had grabbed Paul by his jacket and like the scruff of his shirt and were like shoving him out the door. And I just turned to my date and said, I just want to go home. And then my date and I went to his car and he drove me home. I felt humiliated. I remember going back to school the following week and I was walking to class and he came up behind me and grabbed me by the shoulders, shook me and said, body slam. And it scared the living daylights out of me. I don't know how else to describe it. And then he just kind of walked off and he was laughing. He turned back and laughed at me. And he, he was so proud of himself just for making, you know, for making me afraid. This sinister laugh is a recurring theme in many of the stories I've heard about Paul, as well as being thrown out of gatherings by a group of men. That fall, he moves in with his sister Irma Linda and her boyfriend Brett in a duplex in San Luis Obispo and starts his freshman year at Cal Poly. In his first month, he receives two more citations for speeding in his Ford Ranger. In October, he knocks on the door of a Halloween party on Choro Street and asks if he can join. Not long after he's let in, women at the party begin to comment to the host that Paul is making them very uncomfortable. When things start to wind down, they ask him to leave, but Paul refuses. After pushing him for a while, they finally put the keg outside with him and lock the door. An hour later, they notice Paul standing outside of one of the bedroom windows, hiding in the tall weeds in the dark, watching them. When he sees them looking, he starts to laugh loudly, scaring them all. Around the same time, Paul attends several more parties in San Luis Obispo, where he sets his sights on another woman in a series of encounters. It wasn't just a sexual assault. It was a predator. Like, there's a difference, I feel like. It was premeditated. He had a mission, and he didn't let up fall of 1995 we had a group of girls we were all very close and we would go to lots of parties and the first time we noticed him was when he was basically the guy that was by himself at the party we didn't know where he came from he was just standing there staring at everybody and then it was clear he was targeting me he came up to me and he always spoke in this very under his breath quiet way it was very kind of almost mumbling like you were like what did he just say and he walks up and he mumbled obscenities at me and i remember my friend she was like what did you just say to my friend and she freaked out and she spit her gum at his face and he took her and threw her down on the ground. And then he had like two guys on top of him just jumping him, basically, because they were everyone was so shocked that he did that to my friend. And then he left. That same night, we went to another party after that. And he was there, standing there, staring, lurking. He had this very creepy, creepy energy. He was just off. Everyone noticed we were all like, stay away from him. He's the scary, creepy guy. And over like three, four months, we just kept seeing him at parties. 
but he would follow us. Like he knew we were going to the next party and he'd show up. The next incident, we were all out and we were dancing and he came by and he made another comment at me. And then he came up to me a second time that night and he grabbed my crotch super hard. And then we all yelled at him and I remember my boyfriend punched him. Then after that, we were at a party and I went to go use the restroom. And I went into the bathroom and as I was turning around to shut the door, he kicked the door in and slammed me up against the back wall of the bathroom, trying to rape me. I remember the wallpaper and I remember exactly the layout. I remember the bathroom, exactly where the toilet, where the wall is that he threw me up against. And I just remember kicking and hitting and fighting and Right when I kind of like knocked him back and down a little bit, I took off running out the door and I was yelling and telling everyone what had happened. And then they jumped him and beat him up and the cops came. And uh, that was the last we ever saw of him. When Kristen Smart went missing, I remember just looking at her and feeling similar to her. Like, wow, you know, this could be any of us. And we didn't know at the time Paul Flores was main suspect it would have been good to know at that point his face wasn't put everywhere which if it had been at that point in time i bet there would be a lot more women that came forward at that point maybe there are more women like me who fought you know because i fought back hard and who knows if that instance plus maybe one or two other ones who knows made them realize oh wow in order for me to be this predator that i am i have to figure out how to sedate them. She raises an interesting point, and one that I've been trying to pin down for a while. If Paul was drugging women to subdue them, as he's believed to have done in recent years, when did it begin? I spoke to one of his co-workers at Garland's, who told me she saw Paul put eye drops in a girl's drink once, because he thought it was funny. It's also possible that she was mistaken, and that she witnessed Paul with an actual date rape drug in a small bottle that she assumed was for eye drops. Either way, there are many documented cases of people using eye drops as a makeshift date rape drug, which is incredibly dangerous and has extreme side effects, including vomiting, diarrhea, difficulty breathing, and even death. So could Paul have been drugging women back in 1996 when he met Kristen Smart at a party? He was doing it before Kristen. Sometime March or April, I would say, of, of 1996. I was going to Hancock College. My boyfriend at the time played football at Cal Poly. He had graduated from St. Joe's High School. And so I had frequented parties in San Luis with him and, and his teammates and friends. At one of those parties, she ran into a girl from St. Joseph's, a Catholic high school in Santa Maria, that her boyfriend had also attended. A note, this story is graphic in detail. So she actually went to um, St. Joe's, you know, it was kind of our rival high school. And she wasn't a really good friend of mine, but she was an acquaintance, you know, and when, when we were in high school before we graduated, I would see her at parties all the time. You know, she was a St. Joe's girl, I was a Rigetti girl, and we didn't really hang out that much, but I definitely knew of her. 
Um, and it was at an apartment that was, it was like California and Foothill um, area. And I know it's, it was close to Crandall Way. There was always like a bunch of parties there that, um, that like fraternity or sorority parties. But then it was an individual apartment of somebody that he knew. I didn't know very many people there. Actually, I only knew him. So when I first saw her there, you know, we kind of started talking about, you know, high school and the whole rivalry between high schools and how stupid it was. And she said, I've, you know, I've always liked you and we've always, you know, gotten along when we've seen each other. It's so stupid that we haven't hung out, you know, so we kind of bonded a little bit before this whole incident happened. I'd say like nine o'clock, probably at night, literally less than an hour later, this guy came out of the bathroom and said, somebody get in here, help this girl. And I was kind of walking by at the time and I kind of looked in and I could see that it was her. And I said, oh my God, I could see her, her face was just like white, like a grayish white. She did not look well. Her pants were off, she was vomiting. And, he, and he's like, somebody help. So I went in and I said, hey, get out of here. I got this, this is my friend. And she was totally incapacitated. I mean, she had defecated herself. Her pants were off. She had kind of some foam coming out the side of her mouth. I was literally almost ready to call 911 because I could tell that she was not doing well. And I had just talked to her like 45 minutes before that. So, you know, she had a, this is a, probably too much information, but she had a tampon in that was almost all the way out. You know feces everywhere and i i took the tampon out threw it in the trash she was so tiny she's like less than five feet tall 95 pounds so i literally picked her up and i put her in the bathtub and i started like washing her down i was actually trying to get her to come back so i was using like some cold water and she started coming to a little bit and i was cleaning her up and i finally got her kind of all cleaned up and kind of come to again and that's when Paul Flores walked back into the bathroom and he, and he was the guy that said, hey, come help this girl. He said, I, 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 and he was stuttering and he said, I know her, I wanna help. And I said, get out of here. And she was, she was muttering, no, 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 no. At first I just thought she's in an incapacitated state in the bathtub, basically naked except a bra on that she didn't want anybody coming into the bathroom to see her like that. And I said, please get out and shut the door. And so anyways, I finally got her all cleaned up and one of her friends came back. And I said, do you know that guy that just walked out? Cause they had just walked in right after. And they said, what guy? And I said, the guy that was just in the bathroom with her. And I said, is that her boyfriend? Cause he says he knows her. And he came in to try to take the trash out. And they said, no, she doesn't have a boyfriend. We don't even know who that is. I wrapped a towel around her. She went home in a towel wrapped around her because she didn't have any clothes left. It was not until I saw him on one of the, the news programs stuttering and I saw his face. And that's when I knew that that was the person that was in the bathroom with her initially. And also the person that came back in the bathroom to take the trash out without a shadow of a doubt. You know, going through life and going through college and all those parties and things, I'm thinking, no guy cares about taking the trash out in the bathroom at the party, you know? Her suspicion now, and one that I think is reasonable, is that this guy was attempting to empty the trash to get rid of evidence that he had drugged her friend. 
or anything that might connect him to it. And all of her friends confirmed, and she confirmed to me after, that she did not know him, that she had just met him at the party. And then even after that confirmed that he was definitely the one that gave her a drink that she had been talking to. And over the years, it's haunted her too, because she has thought the same things, but also can't remember everything, right? So can't recall and say without, you know, with 100% certainty, because she was so out of it that that was him. But but I can say with 100% certainty, because I wasn't, that was definitely him. 100%. I reached out to her and I said, look, and she had already thought the same thing, that that definitely was him. Like she thought all the same stuff that I thought. So these two women are fairly confident that Paul Flores was drugging victims before Kristen's disappearance. I'll circle back to the circumstances of that night, but I'd like to establish what else I've learned about Paul's alleged predatory behavior chronologically. Just one week after Kristen's disappearance, Paul showed up to an Arroyo Grande High School prom after party in Napomo. I've talked to five people who saw him there. And some of the women present believe that Paul was looking for an opportunity to drug someone there. I graduated in 1997 from Arroyo Grande High School. Paul was a few years older than me. And he always kind of had that reputation of being a little strange, a little creepy. Um, he was the type of guy you just didn't want to be alone with. It was the weekend after Kristen was missing. And at this point, we didn't know that Kristen was missing and we didn't know any connection to Paul. So Paul just showed up at an after prom party, which was weird because he was already at Cal Poly. I was a junior in high school um, and I thought, that's weird. What is this guy doing here? He showed up alone and I think kind of the overall vibe was like, what is this guy doing? He approached me later in the evening and he was carrying like a pitcher, like those Tupperware pitchers that all of our moms had. And it was filled with some kind of like mixed alcohol drink and he offered it to me. And I told him no and he kept kind of pushing at it. My friends came over, he was trying to get them to drink out of it. And all of us were just kind of like, no, like, who's this guy? What's he doing here? This doesn't feel right. Um, later in the night, he approached me again, and he asked me to go for a walk with him, that he wanted to go for a walk, that he needed to talk. And I don't really have any connection to him, so that was really strange. And I just kept telling him, no, you know, I don't want to leave this party. I just knew something in my gut was telling me, like, don't walk off with this guy. Um, and so I just remember that night him being kind of... Um, looking for someone that was going to take the drink or take the walk kind of like predatory and um my friends and i were just trying to stay away from him i remember some of our guy friends were like leave the girls alone and that's all i remember and then of course months later we learned of the connection after paul's name is released to the media in 1996 people start to talk and paul moves down to southern california where he lives in an apartment with his sister and her husband and gets a job at Blockbuster Video on Alton Parkway in Irvine. One woman I spoke to through email believes that Paul may have stolen her underwear out of the laundry room at her apartment complex on several occasions. And while she can't say it was Paul for sure, she and her family did frequent the Blockbuster he worked at. And it occurs to me that Paul had access to the addresses and phone numbers of every customer who came into the store. 
If you had an unusual encounter with Paul when he lived in Irvine, feel free to reach out to me. After losing his job at Blockbuster, Paul was hired at an Outback Steakhouse on Culver Drive, which opened in July 1997. I spoke to one of his co-workers there in a previous episode, who he tried to persuade to kiss him, and then literally carried into his apartment, where he turned the lights off until she threatened to scream and wake up his sister. I've since heard from other women who worked with Paul at that steakhouse. I got hired at Outback in Irvine in 1997. I was 18 years old, and I got hired as a hostess with Paul. He worked in the kitchen. He was on what they called like the cold side, so he did salads and appetizers and whatnot. During the opening, you do like a lot of hanging out with people and you kind of find your group of friends. And I would say that he wasn't part of my group of friends. He was kind of, you could just tell like he wasn't fitting in, like he wasn't like part of the cool group. You know what I mean? He just kind of seemed awkward. He had a really bad stutter and he would try to kind of flirt with the girls. You could kind of tell he was, he wanted to be part of the crowd. Everyone would go out after work and he would just show up at the bar that we were all at and he would try serving drinks to the girls. Like he would just walk up with a beer in his hand and like try to hand it to you and like give you free beer. And people like no one want, would want to take it because it was from Paul. Just creepy. <laughs> There's no other better word, really. Some interactions that I remember, like, I always ordered my chicken fingers a certain way. Like, I had special orders, and, and he would say, I, I made your chicken fingers just the way you like it, Sarah, with a very heavy stutter. And I was always, like, nice to him. And he just kind of, like, like he would look at you. And I, I remember that look, like, again, because you'd, You'd be standing on the other side of this window, this shelving, and he would kind of be peering out at you from the other side and just kind of like watching all of us. And and it was just creepy. Like he was just a creepy guy. My another coworker of mine reminded me of this, that he would like carve a penis into a cucumber and then put like ranch dressing on it to make it look, you know, vulgar and like put it in we called it the window where the shelving is in the kitchen he would put it up there he would she were, she said that he would chase the girls around with it i don't remember that part but i remember seeing it sitting in the window so you would just like walk up and like oh paul like he had this cucumber there like okay haha just something that stood out it was just kind of gross the other thing that i remembered which stuck with me for my whole life since then was that uh, we had to stand like at the counter and it was called rolling silverware. So you put the silverware in napkins and roll it up. So you'd have to do like 50 or 60 of them. So you'd be standing there for a while and he would come up from behind and start massaging your neck and shoulders while you were doing this. And I, I let him, I let him do it. Then I remember my coworker like said to me, like, don't let Paul touch you like that. And she told me like what he was accused of doing. And then I was like, oh my God, I let a murderer rub my shoulders. And, and, and the fact that I refer to him as a murderer, like I've always thought of him as a murderer. 
there was never a doubt in my mind that he did that. Just knowing him, I was like, oh yeah, this guy totally did it. Like, no doubt, no doubt in my mind. It's also while working at this steakhouse that Torrance Daily Breeze writer Keith Sharon finally gets an opportunity to talk to Paul in person, although he realizes it too late. Uh, it's embarrassing now. Paul Flores was working at a steakhouse in Irvine, and I now had left the Torrance Daily Breeze, and I was working at the Orange County Register. So I went to my editor and said, hey, I'd like to go check it out. I talked to people at the restaurant where he worked, and they may have told me where he was living now, and I went up and knocked on the door. And a guy answered, and he seemed very nice, and I said, hey, I'm from uh, the Orange County Register, and I'm trying to find Paul Flores, and he said something like, oh, you just missed him. He was here a minute ago, but he had to run out. I'm his roommate, so I, I'm talking to this guy, and we have a three or four minute conversation and I said something like, do you know that your roommate is involved in this case up in central California? And he said, yeah, it's, you're not the only person who's knocked on the door. And I said, um, you know, what's he like? What's Paul like? And he was like, well, he's a, he's a good guy. He's just like everybody else. He, he doesn't seem out of the ordinary in any way. And, and I was like, okay, well, my name's Keith Sharon. I'm with the Orange County Register. Here's my phone number. When Paul comes back, have him give me a call if he wants to talk about what it's like to be under suspicion. And he said, okay, thank you very much. And I leave the apartment. I go back to my office. And it was in the days of fax machines. I get a fax with Paul Flores's picture. And it's him. That's the guy I've been talking to. And he's been lying the whole time. The thing that stood out to me was how calm, how easily he just pretended to be someone else. And, and I have a practiced uh, bullshit detector. And he fooled me. I didn't know what Paul Flores looked like. That was a big mistake on my part. After being fired from Outback, Paul gets a job at a bakery in Irvine and then an In-N-Out burger before relocating to the city of Orange, where his sister and her husband have just bought a house. A family friend I reached, who agreed to be recorded for the podcast, and then contacted me after speaking with family and asked me to delete their audio, told me that around this time, they ran into Paul for the first time since the Floreses had moved to the Central Coast in 1992. After growing up around Paul through elementary and middle school, they felt like they knew him pretty well. But upon seeing Paul for the first time as an adult, they told me, quote, I was just like, oh, I'm in the presence of a murderer right now. I didn't even know the details. I just knew that Kristen was missing. But when I saw him, I knew he was a murderer. I just couldn't get out of his presence fast enough. After getting another DUI, Paul is put on probation, and the terms require him to abstain from alcohol and stay out of bars, an order he doesn't follow. After he's seen drinking in a bar in Costa Mesa, and then fails to show up for a court hearing, he's sentenced to eight months in Santa Barbara County Jail. When he's released, he moves briefly back to Torrance, living in a house owned by his brother-in-law's grandmother, before moving in with a family friend in Lawndale. When Dennis Mann, 
the creator of sonofsusan.com, gets a tip that Paul is living there and posts a picture of the house on his website. Paul moves a few houses up the street into a small back house behind another home. It's while living here that he starts to frequent several bars on Pier Avenue in Hermosa Beach, including Patrick Malloy's and Sharky's, where he meets a woman that he dates for several years. She's the one I interviewed in episode four of this podcast, who recounted a time where Paul held a butter knife to her neck until their roommate intervened. But for the entire time they dated, she said Paul continued to frequent the bars in Hermosa Beach alone. And other women vividly remember him from there. My girlfriends and I would run into him around 2004 to 2007. We used to see him at the bars in Hermosa Beach on Pier Avenue. Specifically, it was Sharky's. This was before it burned down the first time. And sometimes at the little pizza place next door. One thing I noticed that he is always alone. Never Never with any friends. If you're always going out to the bar you know, always socializing. How do you, how do you not have any friends? He just seemed very awkward and kind of creepy. He didn't seem to know how to talk to women. He was always just like kind of just staring. He was also sort of gropey, you know, he was kind of like touchy in in inappropriate ways. He was always drunk. He was always heavily intoxicated and always slurring and One time he offered to buy me a pizza after the bars closed. And, you know, of course, I wasn't interested in him. So I said, you know, I'm lactose intolerant. But he didn't really get the hint. And he offered, I'll buy you a salad. And it was was just like a weird thing to say, Um, you know, offering to buy a girl a salad. From then on out, we called him salad boy every time we saw him. Of course, you know, we were a group of girls, so we, you know, he'd always just kind of just like gravitate toward us. And after the bars closed for the night, we would always go to this bench that we would sit on. And, you know, of course, he'd come out and he would just kind of just try to talk to us or just kind of just sit there and just kind of be around us, I guess. And whenever the cops would come, you know, trying to make sure people were behaving on Pier Avenue, that's when he would just take off. It It was just weird. The girlfriends I used to hang out with all the time, you know, of course, you know, over the years, you know, we grew apart, you know, we kind of lost touch and we don't really talk every day anymore. So one friend who I haven't talked to in a long time, she sent me a message after he got arrested, sent me a photo of him and said, this is salad boy. And it was his exact face and everything. It was just really weird. A quick reminder that during this entire period, the Kristen Smart case is languishing up in San Luis Obispo, making little to no progress, while the Smart family and their attorneys are repeatedly refused access to the Sheriff's Department's investigative files, citing an ongoing and active investigation. And Paul Flores continues to target women in South Bay bars. Me and my friends would go to a bar in Redondo Beach. Oh my God, Backstreet. Thirsty Club on Artesia. I guess he had met a few of my friends there, and then I met him that same day. He seemed like a nice guy at first. We all drank with him for a little bit and stuff like that. But then one weekend, I went there with my friends. I went outside to smoke a cigarette, and I didn't know he was still in the bars. And 
Ikea came out the back door and then I was trying to go back in and he's like, oh, have a smoke with me. I'm like, no, thank you. And then he had grabbed me and tried to take me into his car. I hit him and I got loose, but he had hit me in my face and then people were coming out. So that's how I got loose of him and he took off. The police ended up going to the bar afterwards, but I didn't stick around there. I left. I went home. But a lot of people go to the Thirsty Club and they all know me there. So I'm... The detectives called me to find out what actually happened, but they just wanted to come and find out um, what had happened with me and stuff like that. Around this same time, another woman in Redondo Beach blacks out in a bar and wakes up naked in bed with a man she doesn't know. She reports the incident to the police, who collect DNA from her body, which sits for five years before being matched to Paul Flores in 2012. He's questioned, but denies having any recollection of the incident. In March of 2013, the Los Angeles County District Attorney's Office closes their investigation, citing insufficient evidence. While his DNA sits in storage, Paul purchases a house in San Pedro, the house he still owns today, and starts to hang around a handful of bars in downtown Long Beach and on 6th Street in San Pedro. Yeah, I was a bouncer for 20 years all over, you know, downtown LA, Hollywood. And uh, I ended up in San Pedro, and it was on 6th Street. And my encounter, I've broken up some of the biggest fights with some of the biggest gangs all over LA. No one has ever bugged this shit out of me, bro, like him. There is something that I'll never forget about him. The creepiest guy ever. I would notice him in the bar. And he was a person watcher. He was like watching everybody. And you know, Pedro's a very small town. I remember someone, a young lady saying, hey, uh, this guy keeps following me. And I was like, what are you talking about? He's like stalking me. So I told her, I said, you know what? Go to the bar next door. And if he follows you, as soon as he walks in, act like you didn't want to be there and come right back. Uh, she did it. And when he came over, I grabbed him and I was like, hey, bro, I know you're stalking her and you keep following her. We're going to have a problem, me and you, if you continue this. And he was very scared. Like, you know, he had a speech impediment and I think he stuttered or something. He goes, I wasn't doing nothing. And he left like I had caught him. And I was like, that was weird. So he left. Didn't have another altercation with him for a while. Then I remember one night and I remember a girl was extremely drunk and her friends were trying to carry her out towards the truck and i remember saying hey let me help you guys so if you go on sixth street if you look to your right you'll see there's a parking lot so i had helped them walk the girl across the street and i remember putting the girl in there i believe i came back to the bar and i could see the driver's side door pretty good well as we're smoking i'm looking across the street and i notice that the door is open where the girl was sitting. But like that girl, her group of friends were back at the bar already. Like there was no one in the truck with that girl. And there's a guy who has his hand, he has his left hand on the roof of the car and his right hand's like inside the car, but he's looking left and looking right. It's a movement that you notice when someone is gonna do something wrong and they're looking to see if anybody noticed them. And I'm like, what is this creep doing to that girl? I walk across the street and I look at him and he like removes his hand. Now, I can't say that he was touching her inappropriately, but 
all the gestures over there. And I look at him like, hey, what are you doing? He's like, oh, I, oh, I'm just talking to her. Or like, I know her. And I go, well, you know, if she's had a little too much to drink, why don't you keep it moving, bro? Talk to her when she's sober. And he literally puts his hands up, like freeze. And he goes, oh, okay, okay, no problem. And he starts walking away. And I'm like, that guy's a weirdo. And so I remember walking back across the street. I just keep smoking. And then I notice like he's looking at me and walking back towards the truck to see if I turn my head to make eye contact with them. I see his head like above the hood. Now he's like in front of the truck. I see him start moving towards the driver's side of the car. And I'm like, is this creep really gonna do something? And I start walking across the street and I don't see his head anymore. I don't see him and yeah, he's, he is short. But I see the driver's side door open the dome light came on. And that's what really made me start walking over there faster. Like, dude, this creep is gonna like crawl into the driver's side and I don't know what he was gonna do. I was like, hey, mother effer, what are you doing, bro? And he turns and looks at me and just runs away. And I'm like, bro, I'm gonna whoop your ass, bro. I remember telling him, you're a creep. And he just ran, he was gone. And I didn't see him for like a month after that. I would see him and every time he saw me chris he would like stop in his tracks like he stepped in mud and just would look at me and just turn around and i told him i said hey when i catch you i'm not gonna chase you i'm not gonna run after you but i'm gonna whip your ass for the that shit you did that night and he looked at me like he got caught and he ran off fast he was a creep at one of those same bars on sixth street A woman I spoke to strongly suspects that she was drugged by Paul, only about six months after he moved to the area. And the only thing that stopped her from being taken home with him was her friend Crystal. I actually calculated the time frame and it was 2011, the same year that our mutual best friend got into a car accident. We had just left the hospital. Uh, We met a few people on 6th Street. We were at the bar... Uh, we feel very comfortable with that space. You know, we are both from San Pedro. We know everybody there. For us, it's a pretty safe environment. Never thought that anything like this would happen. Uh, we come in, it's a very mellow night. Um, I would say probably we get there between 7 or 8 o'clock in, in the evening. We have, literally, we order one drink. Um, I had a sunrise tequila. I'm sitting there. We're like maybe four seats down from the entrance close to me or right in front of me or like where the napkins and straws and all that good stuff you know that are there available so i'm sitting there you know looking to the left when uh paul comes into the bar the bar is pretty empty so it's not like i'm like oh i need to worry about my drink or you know worry about who's around me like i said i'm very comfortable in in this space Paul comes in and he kind of like pushes up against me a little bit and he's like saying weird things to me and I kind of try to ignore him and and I even tell him kind of like to leave me alone and like back off because he's just irritating saying weird just abnormal things and I'm pretty sure he was saying kiss me too and I was just like what the hell like who are you I don't even know you I don't know your name I my friend is in a coma. I'm not thinking about talking to a guy. You know, I'm I'm sad. We're going through stuff. Like I said, my drink was kind of close to the straws and the napkins. 
and I'm drinking my drink maybe about halfway, not even halfway down my drink. I start feeling a little fuzzy, like I'm blacking out, you know, I'm kind of going in and out. And all of a sudden, you know, I went from sitting down, having a conversation with my friends and telling this guy to kind of back off, blacked out. And I kind of come to, and now I'm making out with this guy. And I'm kind of like, what the hell's going on in my head? This is so abnormal. That was a red flag for me because she was like, back off. We're not the kind of girls that get pushed around by like men or let them take advantage of us, you know? So the next thing you know, I go to use the restroom and I come out and I can't find her. And I'm like, where is she? And she's in the front of the bar with Paul and she's making out with him. And I'm like, what is going on? Something's weird. And you hadn't even finished your whole drink. So this was just strange behavior for you. Right, which I'm thankful for her knowing how I am and how I react. When we go out and have fun, it just was abnormal. And I do remember he had me pinned up against the wall and he kept trying to put his hands in my pants. And I just kind of like remember struggling a little bit and kind of going in and out. And I just kind of remember I was struggling to like pull him off of my private areas. I completely blacked out. Well, at that point, Crystal has to tell you the rest of the story because at that point I was completely gone. She's out there making out with him. And, you know, I'm like, hey, hey, hey. I'm like, hey, get your hands off her. Come on, come on. I'm trying to get her away from him. It's very strange because we don't know him, you know? And then the friends we're with are, are pushing me and pressuring me to tell me to, hey, leave her alone. Leave her alone. She's having fun. She's having fun. But that's not the kind of fun that me and my friend have. I mean, we've been. If you hear noise in the background, that's just me, my dad, and my brother in the background. And it's not really a lot of noise. It's just another part of the room. So let's continue. Best friends since we were 12 years old. We don't really do things like that. So I waited until those friends went back into the bar. And I immediately pulled her from Paul. And I said, listen, we're going to go home. At this point, I had already went in the bar and paid our tab. I said, we're going to go home. And he says, oh, no, no, no. He keeps pulling her to him. She's so messed up at this point. She can't fight it all. And he's like, yeah, let's go back to my house. We can all go back to my house. And I'm like, hey, who are you? I don't know you. Um, you need to leave us alone. At this point, I'm getting upset. I'm getting upset because I need to get my friend home. And she's just acting not herself. She's all messed up. Finally, I say, hey, you really need to back off. And we're not going home with you. We don't know you. And so he had kind of got upset at that point, but he, he actually backed down. And then we actually proceeded to walk home. Like I said, once we got to that point, I completely blacked out and I had to ask her, how did we get home? Because it's so unusual for me to not know how I got home, you know? I mean, I didn't even know where I slept that night. Thank goodness she was with me because like she said, I'm a fighter, I'm a tomboy, I've been in sports. Someone tries to get rough with me, I'm gonna like push back made me question myself because I'm like, what the hell? Like, did I drink more than one drink? The tequila sunrise is, you know, a colorful drink, very thick drink. So you don't really see, you know, when he bumped into me and acted like he was going to get a napkin or whatever, he could have just thrown something in my drink and I didn't even realize or pay attention. Feeling in a very safe environment. I'm not thinking, oh, someone's going to come up and put something in my drink. I know everybody here, except for Paul. It's just mind-blowing that, that I even experienced this. He got me. For us to be in a small town that we grew up in and that we know so many people, it's just awful. It's completely awful. 
They had also spoken with another woman, who told me about a consensual encounter she had with Paul around 2015, which gives me even more insight into his habits and his living situation. I used to frequent uh, the bar called The Spot, which is on 22nd and Pacific. In San Pedro, everybody knows everybody. Um, so when you see somebody new, you kind of, they like stand out, you know? And so um, when I, I was at The Spot and I did notice him, just a new person in the bar, usually go bar hopping. And so we would go down to 6th Street. There's a couple of bars down there. So I ended up at Goodfellas and it was after last call. I was outside and I probably waiting for a lift and he invited me over to his place. And I kind of like shrugged it off and he was being very pushy. And so I was just like, well, I'm not going anywhere uh, unless we go get something to eat. And so we did. And we ended up at Los Tres Cochinitos, which is in Wilmington. And we hung out there for a while and ended up going back to his place. You know, what the heck? I'll just, I'll hang out. When I went inside, his house was like very drab and I would use the word dank dark and dingy and it was just weird trash everywhere and like stacks of paper and newspapers and boxes and tools empty water bottles and and like gallons of water i just remember it was a huge mess and i was just like like where do i sit i remember thinking like this this is creepy why am i here even though i could have called an uber home i just i don't know why i didn't um, but I did feel uncomfortable. We did sit on the couch and talk for a little bit. He had, he also had like, I don't want to say a lisp, but yeah, his speech was, was not clear. And then eventually went to his bedroom. There was like a huge pile of laundry on his bed, no sheets. And I just was like, oh, like, I know he's not going to take me home right now. And I just, I'll just... I'll just go along with it, you know? For the most part, I was face down. I just wanted it to be over. Again, I just thought like, I, why am I here? I just, I just want to go home. I do strongly believe that I may have been drugged because at five o'clock in the morning, I, I was incoherent, you know? I was pretty much still drunk and I hadn't been drinking at all after one. I was drinking water and so I, I have a routine of when I'm drinking, I stop at a certain point, I eat, and then I'm okay, and then eventually I go to sleep. And if I'm hanging out all night, I'm pretty sober, you know, a few hours later, like remembering how I felt and how everything was so foggy um, leads me to believe that I, I definitely was. And then he took me home and that was that. I was just like, I don't ever like wanna ever see this guy again. Unfortunately, he would still go to the spot. I would see him. I just remember him always standing in the corner, staring at me creepily uh, to the point where after a few nights, I told my friend, like, I don't want to be here. That creepy guy Paul is here and I want to go somewhere else. Uh, I moved out of the state and um, every time I would go visit back home, that was one thing that was always on my mind. I hope I don't run into him when I go hang out with my friends because it's gonna be weird and uncomfortable. There was something that happened that night that I don't remember that made me feel uncomfortable around him. And, um, and I'm, I'm glad I never saw him again after that. It's just crazy to me that I put myself in that situation 
with that person, you know, I, I'm lucky, I guess. She says that her memory of that night is clear, up to the point that she asked for a glass of water, which Paul got from the kitchen. If she was drugged, which she suspects she was, this seems to be the most likely opportunity. She says that during sex, she blacked out and woke up multiple times. It begs the question, if she had already consented to going to his house and having sex with him, was Paul Flores drugging women because he needed to or because he wanted to? When investigators collected the Flores family's electronics devices on February 5th, 2020, they found hard drives and cell phones belonging to Paul Flores, which contained a number of videos recorded in his house of himself engaged in sexual activity with various women, many of whom were unconscious and therefore unable to give consent. A source I spoke to tells me that investigators will typically use facial recognition software to track down victims in cases like this, where the women in the videos may not even realize they were raped and filmed. Several of the women I spoke to sent me pictures of themselves, their defining marks and tattoos, and allowed me to forward them to investigators in case they were in any of the videos. If you believe that you were victimized by Paul Flores at any time, you can reach out to investigators at 805-781-4500. Or, if you're more comfortable speaking to me, you can reach out to me on my website, yourownbackyardpodcast.com. Although the Flores family has refused to speak to the media for the past 25 years, Susan's interview with KSBY is long and mostly unguarded, except for one very specific question, which Susan refuses to answer. Well, thank you, Susan. I really do appreciate your candidness. Susan, I mean no disrespect by this, but as a parent myself, have you ever asked Paul or talked to Paul and asked him if he knows anything the conversations that have taken place with with him are something that will sit quiet until, um, unfortunately, we'll see where this is all going to lead. I think it should have been over with. So all those aspects are not up for discussion. Um, I don't have any reason to believe that anybody in our family has any answers to where she is or what happened to her in the final. What has that question been like to Paul? How have you had to ask him or is it something? And that's something, no, we're not, we're not going to discuss. So what did happen on the night of May 24th? and the morning of May 25th, 1996. And what does the rest of the Flores family know about it? With everything I've learned, I'm going to walk through what I think is most plausible. Since the case is going to be in court soon, I'll leave a disclaimer here that my theories may differ from the prosecutions, since the information we've each independently collected may have led us to different conclusions. Everything I'm about to lay out is my own opinion. At the party on Crandall Way, I believe Paul slipped something into Kristen's drink or offered her a drink that he had already spiked.
Based on Paul's history and future pattern of sedating women he met at parties or in bars, I think it's unlikely that Paul's habit of drugging women developed independently of this major event in his life. And I also think that the rush of getting away with this crime may have emboldened Paul to continue this behavior, or even developed into a sexual fetish, since at least one woman believes that Paul drugged her after she had already consented to having sex with him, and because he filmed the act so many times, which implies that he probably enjoyed being able to relive those moments. Paul also admits to arriving at the Crandall party with his own alcohol in the front pocket of his sweatshirt, which he could have spiked with the intention of offering it to a girl at the party. No, wait, wait, um, I, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, take this back. I had the Mickey to Sapira. This, there, at the Ritz in the Hall. Uh, the other Mickey I took with me. Okay, so you were, you were carrying an alcoholic beverage as you, you were walking right down the hill. Uh, you put another beer in your pocket and you head over to your sister's house. Well, it's actually in my sweatshirt. In your sweatshirt, and then you head off to your sister's house. Uh -huh. Interestingly, one of the features of Mickey's malt liquor is a resealable screw-on bottle cap. I believe that Paul kept an eye on Kristen, waiting outside of the bathroom door when she was inside with Trevor Belter, possibly to see if the drugs were taking effect. Several party attendees reported hearing a crash and seeing Paul laying alongside Kristen on the floor for a moment, which may be similar to the woman he pressed himself against in a San Pedro bar in 2011, after she believes he drugged her drink. He kind of like pushes up against me a little. A way to test how intoxicated she was becoming. I believe he probably waited along the walkway between the back and front yards on the north side of 135 Crandall Way, while Kristen laid on the lawn next door until he popped out and offered to walk her back to campus with Tim Davis and Cheryl Anderson. When Tim was interviewed by campus police on May 31st, he says that when he found Kristen lying on the lawn next door, it briefly crossed his mind that Paul may have left her there in the process of trying to walk her home himself when he heard people coming out the front door and hid. Before his interview with campus police wraps up, Tim urges them, quote, the main point that I want to make with you guys is that this guy Paul was a little weird, and everyone realized it. You walk up to anyone at this party, I mean, almost any person, besides the people that were passed out, you walk up and you say, was this guy normal? And they're going to be all, no, this guy's a tripper. Tim is careful not to directly accuse Paul of stalking Kristen throughout the night, but when he describes the moment he found Kristen on the lawn, he says, quote, maybe he lost her and was looking for her or I don't know, or not looking for her. I mean, I'm not trying to say that you know this guy's whatever, but um, Tim pauses and Officer Kennedy says, right. And it's clear that that is probably what they both believe, that Paul was following Kristen throughout the night, watching and waiting for her to be alone. Behavior he demonstrated before and after this night with many other women. Like, he's always, like, right there on, like, almost, like, hovering over her. And then all of a sudden, he came out of the tree, and we were all kind of creeped out, like, how long has he been here and been just hiding up in the tree? He was just standing there staring at everybody, standing there staring, lurking, looking for someone that was going to take the drink or take the walk, kind of, like, predatory. He'd be standing on the other side of this window, this shelving, and he would kind of be peering out at you from the other side. He was always just like, kind of just staring. And he was a person watcher. 
he was like watching everybody. I just remember him always standing in the corner, staring at me creepily. After the walk back to the dorms and separating from Cheryl at the crosswalk near Sequoia Hall, I think it's possible that Paul attempted to persuade Kristen to come back to his dorm room, which was empty for the weekend, or that he attempted to force a sexual encounter right there on the lawn near Grandin Perimeter, looking for spots in the area where they wouldn't be seen. This may be how they ended up in the vicinity of Sierra Madre, where I believe the bicycles saw them struggling. And they may have covered even more ground. The following Sunday morning, a resident in the dorms found a pair of women's panties on the back lawn of Fremont Hall. After she heard that a female student had gone missing, she reported the underwear, and they were collected as evidence. Investigators spent years trying to find the owner of these panties, asking hundreds of students in 1999 whether they could identify them. To my knowledge, no one ever claimed them, and they very well could have been connected to this case. Everyone I've spoken to who was on campus that night described it as dead silent. Even Paul confirms this in his interviews with investigators. Like the halls were dead. By 2 a.m., the campus was even more silent. And I think Paul had ample opportunity to get Kristen back to his dorm room without being noticed. It's possible that a struggle ensued as Kristen resisted his attempts. As I've learned, Paul had a long history of responding violently to situations that didn't call for it. Stomping a kid's head in middle school hard enough to put him in the hospital. Threatening to stab another player on his soccer team. Holding a girl underwater in his pool until an adult had to pull him off of her, or body slamming a girl for cock-blocking him at a party. It's also possible that Kristen could have had a bad reaction to the drugs, and asphyxiated on her own vomit, during or after being raped by Paul, like the woman he ended up with in the bathroom, gray in the face and foaming at the mouth until her friend put her in a cold bath. If either of those scenarios happened, then Kristen Smart died during the attempted commission of a rape, a first-degree murder in the state of California. However Kristen ended up dead, I believe that Paul panicked and ran to his sister Irma Linda's house, a mile away from his dorm, the place that he was already planning to walk earlier that night before he found the party on Crandall Way. Okay, I was walking to my sister, so it went, because she lives in the, um, over there by, um, I talked about, I was walking there, and then like, um, I thought the party, so then I went up stopping by, and then, then I never made it to my sister's. Okay. Did you see your sister that night? No. You saw her walking to your sister? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I, I didn't tell her I was over, because sometimes I just go, like, walk over there, like, I was just, like, kind of, like, a little jog. Okay. Um, I've done that before, like, on Friday. Okay. From there, I believe that Paul placed a call to his father in Arroyo Grande or that Irma Linda made the call herself to tell Reuben about what had happened. As Susan's co-worker described to me, Susan told her the following Tuesday that Reuben had received a phone call in the middle of the night, jumped out of bed, and left home in a hurry without telling her where he was going. And I'm forced to speculate about the location of that call, because brace yourself for this. The phone records for both Reuben's house at White Court and Irma Linda's house were never obtained by law enforcement. Whether that call was actually made and from where, we can only assume. 
I can't confirm whether the following story is completely accurate, but the source who shared it with me is an official who previously worked on the case and has an uncanny memory for detail. They told me that in 1996, the lead detective on the case went to the phone company with a mug full of cocoa powder and peppermints and attempted to sweet talk the receptionist into giving him the phone records for Ruben's white court home. When the receptionist told him that all he had to do was fill out a request form, he stormed out of the building in a huff, offended that his gift hadn't been enough. If this story is true, and even if it's not, failing to secure those phone records was another massive failure of law enforcement. I believe that Paul borrowed Irma Linda's 1985 Volkswagen Cabriolet, with Ruben driving Paul's Ford Ranger, returned to the back of Santa Lucia Hall, where the window of Paul's dorm room faces a small parking lot, and quietly loaded Kristen's body into one of the vehicles wrapped in Paul's bed sheets. From what we've learned this year, I think it's likely that Paul and Ruben brought Kristen's body to the house on White Court and attempted to conceal her under the deck. Susan Flores raises an interesting defense to explain why Kristen's body couldn't have been buried at this house. I mean, you see, there are no fences here. No fences. There's never been a fence up on this lot. We just have the little rail fence. It, it makes no sense. From someone who just spent hours standing on White Court, attempting to get a clear view of what was going on in Ruben's yard over the course of the two-day search, it's very hard to get a good angle. From the street above, the backyard is covered by thick bushes. From the corner, because the house is at an angle, you can only see the front. And from the street below, even from neighbors' backyards, I needed binoculars to watch investigators digging under the house. Even the next-door neighbors can't see the spot where ground-penetrating radar found an anomaly, because it's completely covered by a large avocado tree. This, along with the lattice enclosing the underside of the house, all makes me confident that Reuben easily could have buried a body under his deck without anyone noticing, especially in the middle of the night. I assume that Reuben realized that if Paul wasn't seen on campus Saturday, that it would raise questions about where he had been after walking Kristen back to her dorm. I also believe that Reuben instructed Paul to see a movie with friends that night. When he's questioned in 1997 about the events of that weekend, Reuben has a hard time keeping the days straight. What's the date on Friday, May? You keep throwing the dates and I don't know That's good. where you're at. Okay eventually writing them on a piece of paper in front of him to refer back to. Um, Friday was what? Friday was the 24th. 24th. And then the 25th was Saturday. And Monday the 27th. Right. Okay. Oh, so I don't have to keep trying. Okay. At, um, my mind here. He's not sure if they had a barbecue that weekend. He doesn't know if Irma Linda and Brett came over. He can't remember if he worked that Saturday. But when he's asked about where Paul was that Saturday... That he went to the show with some friends. Okay. Do you know the names of the people he went to the show with? No. Movie stubs are solid documentation of where someone was at a specific time. It's a classic alibi. In fact, in his very first interview with Cal Poly Campus Police, long before he's treated as a suspect or even a person of interest, Paul uses the word alibi. I saw someone when I went to the bathroom. It's like a 
I don't re- even recall who it was. Okay. So this is when you were getting sick? When yeah. You were yeah. Okay. You need to think about that, Paul. Yeah. We need to find that person. Yeah. That would be my alibi. This person is going to be an alibi if it comes down to that. I'm not saying you need an alibi, but this person is going to put you in the hall. It's an interesting choice of words for a 19-year-old with a .6 GPA. And I can't help but wonder if someone had planted the word in his vocabulary in the five days that preceded this interview. So after realizing that Paul needed to get back to campus, I think it's likely that they drove back to San Luis Obispo to return Ermelinda's car, and someone may have seen them. A while back, I spent some time looking into the pizza cart story. A lot of you know this story, and have emailed me to ask me why I haven't discussed it on the podcast. If you're not familiar with the story, here's a brief rundown. Backstage Pizza, a Cal Poly eatery that was later renamed Chow before becoming Mustang Station, had a delivery scooter stolen from its parking space just south of Grandin Perimeter Road in the early morning hours of May 25, 1996. It was discovered at the corner of Loomis and San Inez, just over a mile away, the following morning. Early theories proposed that Paul could have stolen the cart to transport Kristen's body off campus. Before you get too invested, I'll cut to the chase now and tell you that police did eventually track down the person who stole this scooter. And it wasn't Paul Flores. It's a case of drunken antics at the worst time and place but it's been thoroughly investigated and crossed off the list. In the course of investigating the pizza cart lead, campus police and later sheriff's detectives canvassed the neighborhood where the cart was found to look for possible witnesses. By this time, months have passed, and many of the residents are new students who didn't live there in May of 1996. One woman, who lives on the corner of San Inez and Loomis, tells a detective that her sister actually lived in the house before her. Her sister, Rachel, didn't see the pizza cart or have any additional information about it. But she did see something else that weekend, which seems suspicious to her. And I called her to ask about it. Oh my god, I actually have chills all over my body. I have never felt this before. I lived on a corner house over by Cuesta Park, on Loomis and I was just randomly looking out the window and this would be the following morning. This is before I knew anything and saw a suspicious vehicle um, right at the entrance of Cuesta Park. Where I was situated is a very remote area where only my house can see this. I just remember feeling really, really fishy about it and just staring and making sure everything was okay. And I just had a very, very bad feeling about what was going on and wanted to make sure that that was on paper, that I saw a very suspicious vehicle randomly at a very, very early hour of the morning. Early on the morning of Saturday, May 25th, 1996, Rachel was sitting in her living room when she saw a red two-door car stop on Loomis Street facing Cuesta Park with two people inside. Incidentally, Cuesta Park was a location that investigators spent a lot of time searching over the summer of 1996, as did Stan Smart. And notably, the spot where the red car stopped was about 300 feet away 
from the house that Ermelinda's boyfriend Brett had lived in before moving in with Ermelinda. Rachel told investigators that she watched from her living room window as two other people came running down the hill from Cuesta Park, jumped in the car, and left. Could Rachel have seen Paul and Reuben exchanging vehicles or dumping evidence before driving away? Could the other two people have been Ermelinda and Brett? We'll probably never know now. But the reason I find this story intriguing is that Rachel found this event so unusual that she called Cal Poly Campus Police and San Luis Obispo Police Department to report it. And the timing, early on the morning of Saturday, May 25th, and vehicle description, a red two-door car, stand out only in hindsight. It's these kinds of community members who see something strange, document and report it, who I believe will end up eventually solving this case. After returning Paul to Cal Poly, I think it's plausible that Reuben attempts to conceal Kristen's body under his deck while Paul is making withdrawals from an ATM on campus and buying movie tickets to establish an alibi in San Luis Obispo. Sunday morning, it's undisputed that Paul calls Reuben from his dorm room and Reuben picks him up from the campus and takes him back to Arroyo Grande. After midnight, Paul is apparently in Reuben's garage tinkering with the stereo in his truck for several hours and obtaining a black eye in the process. When Susan comes to the white courthouse on Monday morning, she notices the black eye and asks about it. While Paul could have sustained the injury during a struggle with Kristen early Saturday morning, my gut tells me that it's just as likely that he got the black eye from Reuben during an argument or during the act of attempting to bury a body under a deck with little headroom at the far end. And here's what I think is not plausible. After all of the people I've spoken to, who said that Paul tried relentlessly to kiss them, pressing them against walls at parties, cornering them in bathrooms and bars, carrying them into his apartment, attempting to pull them into his car, climbing into strangers' cars to grope them even after being chased off by a large bouncer, and trying to get his hand down their pants in public. It takes a great suspension of disbelief to accept Paul's story, that Kristen Smart, a woman too intoxicated to walk home on her own, was spared from this very consistent pattern of Paul's behavior, and that immediately after Paul uncharacteristically decided not to accost a drunk girl, an even more unlikely occurrence took place. Someone else intercepted Kristen on her walk back to Muir Hall, without Paul seeing or hearing them in the 40 yards between the two dorm buildings, abducted her and either killed her or imprisoned her for the next 25 years without leaving a trace of evidence behind. Or that Kristen Smart chose that moment at 2 o'clock in the morning on May 25th to disappear from society cutting all contact with her friends and family and living in secret for the next two decades, while the last person to walk her home that night grew up to become a prolific rapist, allegedly. Ignoring his injuries that weekend, his lies about them, the scent of human decomposition on his mattress, wastebasket, and telephone, and the biological evidence of a human body buried under his father's deck, 
Ignoring all of that, let's imagine that Paul really had nothing to do with Kristen's death. He was in the wrong place at the wrong time, and it's followed him ever since. To every neighborhood he's moved to, every job he's held, he's been the guy who probably killed Kristen Smart. It destroyed the lives of his father, his mother, her boyfriend, his sister, her ex-husband, and cast strong suspicion on anyone he was known to hang out with at the time. In that case, trying to help a drunk girl home in 1996 was the biggest mistake of Paul's life and backfired unbelievably. And yet, after all of that, Paul Flores has continued on nearly a nightly basis since to hang out at bars, watching girls get drunk and offering to take them home. The same thing that started all of this trouble in the first place. Not to mention that many of those women were not taken home but taken to Paul's house instead, often unconscious, and filmed during sex. There's a reason that courts use the phrase reasonable doubt. How thin is the line between the unluckiest man and the killer of Kristen Smart? While Paul and Ruben Flores await their day in court, it's anybody's guess what's going to happen next. I assume that prosecution will attempt to establish, through California evidence codes, that Paul Flores's idiosyncratic behavior with women before and after Kristen's disappearance can help fill in the blanks of what happened to her that night. That Kristen Smart most likely died in the company of Paul Flores during the commission of a rape. And with Ruben's help, she was buried under the deck at White Court. The defense will likely raise questions about whether or not investigators had a good enough reason to search Ruben's house in the first place, or whether witnesses' memories from 25 years ago are reliable. And while the preliminary hearing, which has already been pushed back, is expected to take place throughout most of July 2021, with dozens of witnesses likely testifying, my goal remains the same, to find the current location of Kristen Smart. And we may have a pretty good lead, because after the first warrants were served on the Flores family last year, when investigators seized their electronics devices on February 5th, 2020, a witness observed suspicious behavior later that week that drew their attention to Ruben Flores's house. Behavior which they documented and reported. I obtained information that Mike McConville, Susan Flores, and Ruben Flores were arguing and fighting throughout the night that there was a, a vehicle, Susan's vehicle, parked adjacent to the garage, which would lead to access to the area where the body likely was. Uh, we know that the Law enforcement a year later in a comprehensive search did find biological evidence at the same location uh, where uh, the hole was with the disturbed dirt. So it's pretty clear that that body was moved. One eyewitness who was vigilant and alert may have 
busted this case wide open. So I would appeal to everyone in this community. You all know what Susan looks like. You know what Ruben looks like. Now Ruben's not going to be out much, but if you have seen Mike McConville, if you have seen Susan Flores driving somewhere where they probably shouldn't be, alert us to it. Call my law office. Call Clint Cole. Call Chris Lambert. We're going to find her remains. episode 10 the beginning of the end part two um in a little bit i'm gonna um talk about those women that were speaking out against um paul flores because i think it's just mind-blowing that i didn't even notice that either or realize that he had victims of sexual abuse and almost rape it's just amazing i didn't even know that i heard about the um case and i watched different videos on it like different like true crime videos not like from youtubers but specifically but like more so on like those dateline and 2020 the first 40 48 hours you know those type of crime shows and um they have spoke about um paul flores and his dad um, before, <clears throat> but not in a manner of speaking of sexual abuse and drugging women, not in that manner, but I'll speak about it in a few minutes, so give me one minute, <clears throat> I need to breathe, whew. okay, Paul Flores is just, whew, a one difficult person talk about because he at the time 2021 which is like two years ago he was due back in court soon for his preliminary hearing in july late july just like what chris said in late july and it's crazy to think about and go back on this episode to think about what these women are talking about what's crazy is that he's using eye drops as like a date rape drug and that's disgusting and i never knew you can use eye drops for that specific reason for date rapes and sorry if you hear me heavy breathing but i'm just talking like non-stop without like you know stopping at any point <sighs> like right now i didn't even take a breather but hold on if you hear creaking sound that's mature okay so yeah Paul Flores is a despicable man, not despicable me, but a despicable man because he has the audacity to stalk people. He's a stalker. He's a sexual predator. What else? There's other things. He is egotistical. So what do we, what do we have? Egotistical, sexual predator, stalker. 
what is it? I've been called a stalker before. Bef- like, in middle school. And they never, like, they as in the kids that would call me stalker. Like, oh, she was stalking him. Oh, she followed him. She stalked him to his house. I did not do that. Just because I was walking in the same block as them and saw where they live doesn't make me a stalker. That makes me observant. It makes me observant. Stalking is following them behind them without them even knowing and um, taking pictures, taking notes of like, oh, he lives on 78th Street. Um, you know, so and so and so place, specific house color, and writing it down on or saying it on voice memos. I never did that, and my voice memos ever since God knows how long, since I was 13 or so, has been filled with me singing different songs. And sometimes they last like three minutes, four minutes, and it's just a short period of time because I am singing and I'm not really. Um, saying, oh, this guy lives this place. No, that's not who I was. People just like to assume the worst of people, and that's annoying. But going back to Paul Flores, I hate that these women had to go through these things because I'm not saying it's he said, she said. I believe that what they're saying is credible, and I don't want, I don't want to believe what Paul Flores says is credible. But, um... Again, if you took a polygraph, it's never going to be admissible in court. I don't know if it's never, but I'm pretty sure it's not admissible in court. I don't even remember distinctly hearing from 2020 or any of these documentary documentaries, like, specifically about the fact of, going back to Chris Watts, that um, his um, polygraph went through court. Because I don't think it went through court because... If Flores and Ruben Flores were to take a polygraph and they lied about it, like lied through their teeth and it showed on the polygraph that they lied and they're terrible liars, then that would never have been admissible to court in court. Furthermore, that um, he would put these, we don't even know for sure if he did actually do this. But these women would black out. They would take drinks, like one drink. One drink, not like five drinks, and then black out. They would take one drink, and then one drink, they would be like spinning, like their heads were spinning, not literally, but figuratively. Their heads were spinning, and that moment later, they'll black out, and then they'll wake up naked next to Paul Flores, which is just to think, like, what the hell did he put in their drinks? Because it wouldn't be the bartender. The bartender would... It could be the part bartender, but at the same time, the police probably questioned them or something like that. Or these women went back to the bar and asked the bartender, did you put anything in my drink besides the liquor? They would obviously say, no, I just put the specific liquor that's in the drink. That's it. They wouldn't put any eye drops in there because why would they? So they can get arrested and be and have that on their record. And have that um, r- attempted rape on their re- on their record on their rap sheet. It's just crazy, and um, the fact that these women have the bravery to speak out about him in this day and age of twenty twenty one, it's just 
amazing. Like, I props to the women that spoke about uh, about this because Chris didn't mention their names, and I think that he was rightfully so to do so because in order for you to rightfully say their names, you have to ask their permission in order for that to be said. And I think they didn't want their names to be out there because she said, oh, one woman, one woman, one woman. Because he would say, one woman said, one woman said, another woman said. And I think he wasn't being very specific to who and to what name, what woman. He didn't say that because he was respectful. He was being respectful to the women that were victims of Paul Flores. And I <laughs> express uh, a lot of good um, trust in these women. Because um, I watch a lot of SVU. If you don't know what that is, it's Law and Order Special Victims Unit. It's basically a show, uh, not really true crime, but it's dramatized crime TV show with Marishka. With Marishka since the two thousand since two thousands. Um, um, it's basically if you have been sexually molested, assaulted, raped, all that, physical beatings, all that stuff, it will be reported, you will report to them in New York or any unit that has SVU in New York, and they will investigate and they'll arrest them and you have to testify, so there's that, and um, I'm pretty sure that these women didn't really come forward because they were scared of what they were going to do. And I I was listening in to what the man... And I don't think Chris said specifically who the man name, like his name was. But I love that man because that man was so helpful. He literally said that he told Paul to stop following that woman because that woman told him. Asked her if she was okay. She's like, no, this guy's following me at the bar that they were at. And he, then she gets up and then Paul walks the same direction. She's walking to towards that man. And the man stops him, grabs him, tells him, you better stop freaking following her. Because that's not right. And then he got spooked and he was stuttering and then he um, walked walked out of there. But then he continues on to say that, like, there's another woman, that same woman, she was walking, and Paul was still there. He didn't technically leave, leave, leave. He was still walking, and I, they were talking, uh, but I don't think it was the same woman. I think it was another woman. <clears throat> and then he saw him a different night, and he was doing something, he saw him doing something sexual, and then he came up to him, and he was like, oh, hey, what's going on? And then he was like, oh, nothing! And then he stopped doing it, and he was like, oh, nothing, nothing, nothing. And the girl was like, kind of like, looking a little bit blacked out, because I think they went to a bar, and they were walking, and all of a sudden, and she looked kind of like half out of it. He saw, the man saw that, and he was like, oh, I'm walking, I'm just walking her home, Paul said. And then like, the guy's like, um, yeah, I don't think she's in her right mind for you to walk her home. So, and then he got spooked. Then, then he walked away. He walked away and let and let that guy take her home. Not like take her home and have sex, but like take her home properly and leave her home. And, and open the door for her and, so, and all that stuff, like a gentleman. 
But the guy did say that he said he knew he knew that I saw what they were doing was something sexual. And that's why he got spooked and he didn't say anything what he was specifically doing. And I was like, in my head, I was like, yeah, he didn't even really fucking say that. Oh, that he was sexually touching her in a, in a way that was disturbing. Because if I would have saw that, I would have get so mad. I would have been so ballistic. I would have been like, what the hell is he doing? That's the that's fucking disgusting. <laughs> to be honest, that's fucking disgusting. I'm not laughing. I'm just kind of like breathing. <laughs> and it's just disgusting. And props to the women that were talking about like, oh, that like, I only had like one drink. And then like, this guy was like sitting right next to me. And he was all being creepy and weird. He kept staring in my direction. And I only... And he said something weird, like, kiss me or something like that. And then, along those lines. And then she goes, sorry, it's not funny. I'm just, like, trying to breathe. But, um, she goes, yeah, and I just thought it was kind of weird. So then, um, her, she's with her friends because one of her other friends got into an accident, car accident, she said. And she, and they came from the hospital that day and they went to go out for drinks and she didn't want to hook up with the man that day she didn't want to hook up with that man that same day that her friend got injured and she thought it was wrong so then she he told him like not now i don't want to i don't want to hook up with anyone i want to be by myself because i'm sad and he didn't quite get the memo <laughs> and he kept pressing he kept pressing you know pressing 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 and I was like, really? This guy doesn't back... He doesn't know when to back the hell off. Like, what is it going to take for him to back the hell off these women? For him to understand that, like, you know, they don't want to talk to you. They want to be left alone. They have their own boyfriends. But no, you keep persisting and persisting and persisting until you get your fucking way. That's not how life works. This is not how life works. You don't persist and persist and persist. Like, hey, sweet thing, you want to... You want to um, get a drink with me? And then go like, no, I'm with my girlfriends. And they don't want anything. I don't want to. It's just that I don't want to. Like, I don't know you. You don't know me. I don't know you. So why would I want to get drinks with you? Well, we can get drinks and then we can go um, discuss um, how we, like, not how we are in bed, but like how we are like, you know, in general, like, conversate, like, like, how can we converse, like, can we have a conversation and get to know each other, and then they're like, um, no, and because you have that gut instinct that, like, this guy's bad news, this guy's bad news, like, I don't want to talk to him, he's very off, so you're like, okay, let's not talk to him, let's refrain from talking to him, so, um, that's how I would have felt as well. I would have been like, okay, this guy is dangerous. Let's not really, um, talk to him. You know, let's not really talk to him or get to know him and get in bed with him because God knows who he is because God forbid if he's a murderer or a com not convicted, but you know what I mean? Like <sighs> suspicions of murder. Of someone, some woman, or some guy, then I got in bed with the murderer, and I might as well be pregnant with his baby. And that's scary to think about for a woman, for these women. That's just, I, I don't know. 
It's just he's just Oh, let's let's add that to the list of things. I was gonna say sadistic. He's very sadistic too. And tight lipped, because he didn't he again, it's he's tight lipped, sadistic, egotistical, stalker, sexual predator. Five things. And the reason why I say he's tight lipped is because um have you any, have you been involved with any um in anything of Chris, Kristen Denise Smart's disappearance? I advise my rights of the Fifth Amendment of the United States Constitution. What were you with Den- Denise Kristen Smart the night of her disappearance? I plead the Fifth of the United States Con- U.S. Constitution. Really, and it's no time. Um, where's your car now during the disappearance of Kristen Denise Smart's disappearance? Um, I plead the fifth of the United States. And he says that I remember in one of the audios that we were hearing his, um, questioning with his attorney present, with Paul Flores' attorney present in Paul Flores, when he was repeating it over and over again with the fifth, with the fifth amendment of the U.S. and U.S., constitution part that he stuttered because he was repeating it fast he was reciting it fast and i was like paul relax i'm like in my head i'm like paul relax like you don't need to have to have that stutter people have stutters when i was in like when i was 13 i had a stutter like a little stutter because i was shy during sixth grade and fifth grade a little bit but then i got out of that headspace and I was like you have to get comfortable you have to you know be normal ish because um according to people and people um that used to be friends with me would vouch for this um they would say that I was a weird person not like weird like Paul Flores not like that but in a manner of like socially like socially as in like I would say ridiculous things, not like sexually. I would say things weird, like weird sort of things, be weird-ish. And it was my way of being myself in a sort of way. And it wasn't a point where it made people uncomfortable. I would always ask them, I was like, if you feel uncomfortable with me, I even asked them, not now, but like I asked them before I'd be ridiculous and be weird. If you feel uncomfortable at any certain point just tell me and i'll stop i'll even tell them that from the get-go and they'll be like okay and then they'll tell me later on like what you did was kind of weird and i think you should like knock it off like i love the fact that people tell me that because it tells me that like i value their opinions i value what they say and i care but other than paul flores between me and paul flores i'm not a sexual predator i'm not sadistic i'm not egotistical at all i used to be in fifth grade but not in like in the manner of speaking of paul floor is more egotistical to the point where like my ego was bigger than others and that my ego was over the top and that my ego was more important than others egos so yeah but i just feel bad for these women that had to go through this like so bad. So um yeah. 
that's that. That's the end of episode 10. Um, next episode, we're going to do People versus Flores number one, which is called Motions. And the... And People versus Flores number two called Jerry Final Motions Subpoena. So, um... The synopsis of that one, the first one, the motions, uh, People versus Flores, is Chris, the podcaster of Your Own Backyard, recaps the pre-trial events following 2021 preliminary hearing through the first week of motions in the Sal- Salinas, Salinas Courthouse. In Salinas, Sal. Inas is spelled S-A-L-I-N-A-S. Again, S-A-L-I-N-A-S. Courthouse. And then People versus Flores, number two, the jury, final motions and subpoena, the short synopsis of that one is Chris recaps the the final pretrial events from the Salinas courthouse i hope you enjoyed this part um this part and also this episode and speak to you guys in the next one bye